Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. So you have a certain supply elasticity. Bitcoin is by design, and to my knowledge, really the first, I would say, commodity ever that is perfectly inelastic uh, from a supply perspective. So any increase in demand can be manifested exclusively in price, not supply. The supply progresses at the preordained rate. And that, I think, causes some of this outsized volatility because you know, with gold, for instance, the volatility can be moderated somewhat by the, the, the supply response to a demand shock. That's not present in Bitcoin. Some people say that's a bad thing, right? Um, if, if it wants to progress to a medium of exchange. But from a trading perspective, that's part of the attractiveness is it's extremely pure. Demand is very purely expressed in price. Hello there. Before buying out of the money calls on heavily shorted stocks was the hottest game in town. There was a little thing called Bitcoin going up above $40,000 per coin. Uh, So we're asking how are investors supposed to think about Bitcoin? How are hedge funds using Bitcoin and harvesting the volatility there? How real is this move in Bitcoin overall? We found two of the most non-lunatic Bitcoin believers around to share their deep and surprisingly rational knowledge on the space. Uh, we've got Meltem Demirers, the Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, and Nick Carter, a partner at Castle Island Ventures and founder of CoinMetrics. Welcome, Meltem. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for being here. You, you're a brave, you're a brave person, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been told for having you both on at the same time, or just for having you on. Which one? Both, both, Nick and I. Think Nick, you're pretty feisty, wouldn't you say? No, I, I try to stay stay calm but uh yeah we can be a handful anyway thank you for having us yeah thanks for being here so i'll start by asking both of you what it feels like to not be the most volatile asset on the street so far this year with gamestop and wall street bets taking all the crazy headlines from you is that a new a new gig i mean my whole take is um after six years of doing this professionally and getting laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, and basically, you know, it feels like punched in the face almost every single day of the last six years. Um, You know, I I kind of miss the pain, which probably makes (laughs) me a masochist. I'm like, people like Bitcoin. Like the weirdest thing is, and and Nick will get this because he's a far more prolific writer than I am, but people will like say my own words back to me. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, I, I read this thing you wrote like five years ago and I love it. And I've been using it. And I'm like, that's wacky. <laughs> why, why are you agreeing with me? So it's just been interesting, just the fundamental shift in sentiment. It, 
I kind of miss being the little guy fighting the man, but now Bitcoin's like establishment. So I don't know. I feel like I need to find a new way to be like edgy. Nick, what do you right. think? And you think that's because the rest of the world's gotten crazier and or Bitcoin stayed level or Bitcoin has become more stable? I just think nothing matters anymore and the world is crazy and normal doesn't exist anymore. Like the spectacles just keep getting bigger, right? We have entered the bread and circuses phase of like modern democracy. So the spectacles need to be bigger to keep the people distracted from the fact that we are witnessing the greatest consolidation of power in modern human history. So the spectacles are just going to get bigger and the Bitcoin spectacle is just not that big when you look at the shit show that's going on outside your front door every day. Love it. Nick? Well, I don't know how to follow that, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I do. Open your front door I, and see the shit show out there. On the volatility front, it's something you just get used to. I don't know. The, the, I don't know what Bitcoin's annualized volatility is right now. Something ridiculous. It's always fairly elevated. I don't know if it'll ever decline. Usually but, around like 80% or something, right? Yeah, that sounds I think right. I usually triple, dig triple digits, like 110. Okay. Yeah. Well, either way, it's high. And it's something that eventually doesn't phase you, I think. And I always find it interesting when you have these big moves in silver or, you know, certain stocks and, uh, and, you know, people treat them as catastrophic when we just deal with uh, this absurd volatility and this incredibly cyclical industry all the time. Um, and I think you just get emotionally kind of um, numb to it after a certain period of time. But yeah, you I, think I, the, I, the same retail people that are like, we're buying crypto have jumped over to playing options and whatnot, or are they too, disparate groups honestly I, I couldn't tell you if it's the same people but i think the motivation is grounded in the same thing which is that people feel that there is a monetary debasement occurring and they realize that saving cash is not really going to work as a strategy here and so they decide to either seek inflation hedges like bitcoin or gold or pile into financial assets, which I guess are also being perceived as inflation hedges. So I think they're actually grounded really in the same sort of underlying phenomenon here. Love it. Uh, and I had a quick question on what would each of you do if you were that Stefan Thomas guy who needs the 250 million? What does he have? A couple more chances? Well, Stefan Thomas is really wealthy independently of that because he's one of the original Ripplers. So if I was him, I would uh, go to the beach, basically, and uh, <laughs> not worry about those <laughs> X many Bitcoins. Or if you were I, someone like I, him. Yeah. But I don't know why people feel the need to publicize the fact that they own a lot of digital assets. Like, there are all these Forbes rich lists. Forbes has been doing a crypto rich list for a while now, and I've never understood why anyone would submit their name to that. It's like the dumbest possible thing you can do in this day and age to dox yourself and out yourself. So I don't understand the motivation for Stefan Thomas in doing a whole PR campaign around it. Um, I've, I've never really understood people who feel the need to advertise, you know, um, in, in that manner. So I guess I just don't really understand what, like, why, why? What, maybe because he wants that? someone to call him and be like, have you tried um, XYZ123? Yeah. 
It's he was like Honestly, one of the earliest Bitcoiners. Honestly, he created that website, We Use Coins, back I think in 2010. So regardless of his lost stash, he's doing fine, I assure yeah. you. <laughs> but And talk to that a little bit because you mentioned you're in an undisclosed location, Meltem, and like, is there more risk or more perceived risk with owning Bitcoin or whatnot of, you know, that it could get physically stolen from you, that it could get digitally stolen from you? Talk a little bit about that need for privacy. I, I just think generally, um, if you work in the Bitcoin industry or, or really in today's modern age, one of the beautiful things about the last 12 months is we exist purely in the digital realm, right? Like I don't hang out with Nick physically in person, but I see Nick's lovely face on a regular basis online and I hear his voice on Clubhouse. Like, so the, the beautiful thing about the digital world, and, and this is actually why I think Bitcoin is so fascinating, is we can be pseudonymous. Bitcoin's not anonymous. This is actually like a popular misconception that I want to dispel. It's a myth I want to dispel. And being pseudonymous and having certain degrees of freedom um, in which to live your life and having the ability to have an element of privacy in your location, in your communications, in your financial transactions, in your interactions, um, gives you a degree of, of freedom. And I am all about preserving as much of my freedom as, as I can. Um, and so I think uh, being a Bitcoiner for the last eight years has certainly taught me a, a lot about the importance of privacy and maintaining a pseudonymous identity, even like the persona you you have online, right? I would say my online persona is pretty consistent with me in real life. Like Nick knows, you know, my smarminess is translated from the internet directly into real life. Um, but, but I do think it's very important in this day and age for people to be very deliberate about what they choose to disclose about themselves. And so that's sort of where my concern comes from is why create unnecessary risks, why create unnecessary risk vectors, there is no need for you to expose yourself to that potential risk. So why do it at all? That's my view. Yeah, which which is almost outside of Bitcoin or anything anyway, just digital footprint, be careful out there, right? There's bad actors out there. Well, the difference I would say is that cryptocurrency is a digital bearer asset and um, like cash once a transaction is made there's no recourse it's final so you can't exactly you know steal someone's stock certificates from them and take final ownership of them but you certainly can they have to be bearer bonds like in die hard right right and that's why bearer bonds are used in all of those old-timey films uh at, you know as the MacGuffin or whatever because you're making me those... feel calling die hard an old-timey film but I'll, I'll give it to you <laughs> yes i did recently watch it for the first time it's totally worth the hype it's great yeah um but that's okay. you know that's where the thing is you're like the anti-boomer where how have you not seen die hard i've seen it now so i'm i'm up okay. to date but you know the point is crypto folks are carrying around wealth which uh on, on for better or for worse um once those transactions are made that's final and uh, so it's it's the equivalent of carrying enormous duffel bags of cash around with you. Obviously, there's more sophisticated ways 
to manage your exposure to those keys. And, you know, there's a number of different ways to split up keys and get more sophisticated about it and, you know, have geographically sharded key setups and so on. So, but, you know, fundamentally the innovation here is the digital bear asset. So anybody that's associated with that industry is going to come under more pressure, heightened risk, all of my investor friends were having conversations about how do we manage our operational security and these risks? Um, how do we physically protect ourselves? I don't think that's the case in, in many other industries. I know it's not just a matter of there being lots of newly wealthy individuals. It's newly wealthy individuals with the equivalent of duffel bags of cash, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I've long said that's part of the problem we can get to later, but in the futures world and the you know, not being physically settled because it's so much of a risk. Like all these FCMs that, you know, settle futures trades, I don't think have the setup to protect the, if it was physically settled, have the digital setup to protect those, that settlement and make sure, right? Once it's, if they make a mistake, it's it's a big mistake. But, but I'll just add, Jeff, maybe a counterpoint to that. I also think um, a digital bearer asset that settles with finality has some really presents really interesting opportunities. Um, and so what I'm excited about just sort of shifting gears away from the risks is the opportunities that are created in capital markets when you no longer need a trusted intermediary, you no longer need a PB, you potentially don't even need your FCM anymore. Um, in terms of, you know, clearing and margining and providing uh, escrow and attestations and, and proofs of reserve, there are a lot of really fascinating things you can now uh, do because of this, this property. Um, and, and so, yes, there, there are risks, but also there are opportunities. So I kind of view this as, you know, when the internet first came out, um, I accessed the internet at first through AOL. And then I, you know, was a little baby degenerate Meltzum, you know, I was playing video games and I wanted to find all the good cheat codes. So then you got into IRC and all these like weird forums all over the internet. Um, but as you were navigating the internet, you know, there was a bunch of immersion and new behavior that had different types of risks. And then we learned about those risks, but over time what the internet facilitated in terms of opportunities far outweighed many of, of the risks, which is why we all carry these nifty little supercomputers <laughs> that are always connected to the internet in our pockets. Similarly, like money and capital markets haven't seen real technological innovation in for 40 years, maybe not since the advent of electronic trading. And arguably electronic trading, you know, for all of its benefits is still constrained by a lot of the legacy correspondent banking system and some of the, the legacy rulemaking that exists around capital markets. So in my- uh, view, Any of our listeners who send wires on a regular basis are like, is this really where we're at? This is- I don't send wires anymore. I, it takes me three days to send a wire. And in fact, my wires often get blocked by my bank and they call me and ask me questions or I have to go into a bank branch with two forms of ID to ask to send my money. Um, I send digital dollars on the blockchain. I send dollars, USDC, um, on a blockchain and it takes about two seconds to, to settle and I don't need to ask anyone for permission. Yeah, we, we settle our, our venture deals in, in stable coins for the most part now instead of wires. And uh, the startups that we're investing in pay their employees in stable coins in many cases. And some of them collect revenues in stable coins or crypto. So now we have the full loop of financing and payroll 
and uh, working capital management all happening in crypto terms. It's far, far superior to um, to the, the kind of legacy system, I suppose you call it. Let me back up. I buried the lead and didn't let you guys do a little bios and intros. So, um, Nick, I'll start with you since you had the mic there and you mentioned your venture deals and whatnot. Give a quick background on how you got here and uh, what your firm does. Yeah, so uh, we're Castle Island Ventures. We invest in seed stage uh, startups in the public blockchain industry with a focus on uh, financial infrastructure. So there's a lot happening in the crypto landscape. We tend to focus on one more narrow element of that, which is really exactly what we've been discussing, um, managing people's exposure to these new digital assets and helping them get access to it and making that transition from the established monetary and financial system to the crypto financial system. Uh, so I also uh, co-founded a data analytics business called CoinMetrics, which basically understands these as open, transparent ledgers and tries to find interesting economic information within them. And uh, prior to that, I worked at Fidelity. I was on their crypto team. I was their first sort of dedicated crypto analyst over there. All right. And what, what's an example of some of the uh, analytics you pull out of that data or some of the well, analytics you pull out? So the amazing thing is that because every transaction on a public blockchain is effectively public, it's not public who is making the transaction, but the transaction itself is publicly surveillable. Yeah. Um, you can derive the equivalent of the the macroeconomic data that you might see on the FRED website, uh, uh, you know, Federal Reserve St. Louis data website, yeah. instead of waiting to get that data on a quarterly basis, you can get it on a literally real-time block-by-block basis. Equivalently, there are some entities now that are kind of pseudo-equity. We're seeing um, effectively corporations that exist in a blockchain context and to the extent that they have financials, you don't have to wait for quarterly reporting. You can see real-time cash flows accreting to these entities uh, and flowing to token holders. So you can see the innards of the corporation on the blockchain in real time on a per block basis with, with no latency. So the transparency you get from having cash flows existing on chain is really unbelievable. I, I, it's hard to imagine. Like, it's like hedge funds paying similar. for credit card data and building a model of what what. Was yeah, sim similar. Last. Yeah, except imagine not just credit card data, but any. First of all, more democratized because really anybody can get access to this, as opposed to just hedge funds paying, um, you know, inordinate sums for it. Um, and I use I use CoinMetrics. I I paid for my API key, um, but. You know, I think the other cool thing, Nick won't say this because he's extremely humble. Coinmetrics has also done a great job building uh, new types of metrics specific to this industry. So um, there's a bunch of really interesting data that they aggregate that's sort of new and emergent market data that we don't have in, in other types of assets. Again, I think the transparency of having a public ledger allows for a level of analysis that we haven't had with many other assets. And so um, for those who are interested, we use CoinMetrics a lot in, in our research and they've done a great job defining new metrics and then um, 
on their on their blog they break these down in a really detailed and nuanced way so nick i'll show it for you since you want to. <laughs> thanks <laughs> he can thanks, return the favor after he you tell us what you're doing i'll say it. nice stuff about coin shares too right at coin so. shares <laughs> well coin shares give, give us your I, yeah go ahead melton yeah, so, so I'll keep this really brief. Um, I uh, am Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares. We are a digital asset investment firm. Um, we operate across seven countries. We have a number of different product lines. We have exchange traded products that trade in the European market. We have $4 billion in assets under management on our ETP platform. We have an ETN as well as an ETC. Um, for those who are familiar with those different product constructions, we also have a very active capital markets business that functions much like a traditional thick desk. We provide liquidity to other players in the market and are very focused on electronic trading and market microstructure. Uh, for those who want to delve into that, that's, you know, core area I spend my time on. Um, I manage our active investing. Um, I also do a lot of our acquisitions, M&A, strategic partnerships. Um, and then we also recently launched a custody business in partnership with the investment bank Nomura and the cybersecurity company Ledger um, that has close to 4 billion assets under custody. And we work with banks, asset managers, institutions, and now also governments. So for us, you know, where we sit, um, we try to bridge the gap between traditional financial services and the world of crypto. Prior to that, uh, I was on the early team at Digital Currency Group, which is one of the largest investment firms in the crypto space. Um, spent three years there managing proprietary investments and growth and acquisitions. And prior to that, I was in the energy industry. I started my career trading physical ethanol and methanol. So yeah. I too have seen the time of the dinosaurs. I used to be the woman with two Blackberries and two phones glued to my ear, just sitting there like this. Um, I traded my way through the 08 crisis where we traded a lot of distressed cargoes. And then I started a carbon desk where I worked. Um, and after that went into oil and gas M&A ended up at ExxonMobil in corporate treasury trading overnight rates. Uh, so you know, have kind of walked the the path of uh, TradFi and then got really deep into the crypto rabbit hole, got really into Bitcoin and uh, decided to do something crazy with my career and my life and spend it working on Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're wearing these 17 hats. It's got to be heavy. Um, and which okay. is it fair to say both of you are more, um, right? Like you're selling the picks and shovels to the, not necessarily the miners, but you're kind of, invested in and looking at the industry as a whole instead of just i love bitcoin i'm going to own as much of it as possible well, and is that the real opportunity both. i mean i'm i'm a you know big time bitcoiner so i'm i'm always trying to accumulate as much as i can through whatever vehicles possible but the more productive thing you can do with your resources is to finance the entrepreneurs that are actually building the stuff to make it useful and then I, do, sorry go ahead Mel. I would say, you know, over the last six years, I've invested in 250 companies in this industry. First digital currency group balance sheet as an angel, now coin shares, both balance sheet and our venture fund. Um, there are a lot of different themes you can invest in. For us, capital markets is a big theme. Like we're re-architecting capital markets with some of these businesses we're investing in, and it's really exciting. We're also heavily investing in the future of compute and connectivity. 
Um, I think, you know, if the past was about the quest for oil and if oil was the fuel for our global economy, the future is really about semiconductors, silicon and access to compute. Um, and so I think in this new landscape, like there's a lot of really interesting dynamics that play out and, and Bitcoin as a network has some really fascinating characteristics uh, that make it just a very attractive um, area to invest in like it's Bitcoin is a way to price access to compute and connectivity because you have to pay fees to get your messages through the, the Bitcoin network and there's an active fee market um, which determines how your transactions the data you're putting on the network is prioritized so I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunity there for people who are listening who've looked at you know the history of cloud compute and earlier efforts to create cloud compute futures um, you know if we go back to the Enron days even they tried to create a market for digital connectivity and to price bandwidth and they sort of tried to do Netflix before Netflix with yeah, you're us. the only person I've heard of like saying good things about Enron I love it <laughs> Look, Enron was a hot mess, but I think conceptually, like they were onto some really interesting ideas. It's just that they couldn't actually do what they said they would do. And then they lied about it. Right? It's like yeah. not positive things, but the idea that they had that markets would be digital interconnected and that there would be a market for every anything and everything. I think that's actually the future we live in now, you know, 21 years later. Um, so that's an area we spend a lot of time on as, as well. I think it's very important um, coming from an energy background and working on the physical side of the oil and gas industry, like pipelines and refineries. Every compute network, um, every financial network has physical infrastructure underlying it and routing topology underlying it and routing logic and, and structure underlying it. So I think for me, that connection to the physical infrastructure that supports Bitcoin and makes it possible is fascinating because that in and of itself is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry um, that's going to grow, I think, exponentially in the coming years and decades. But that's interesting to tie it to the energy because that's total boom and bust, right? Like energy prices are high borrow a bunch of money, build a bunch of infrastructure. and Oh, yeah. I did the high. first few pipeline MLPs, like talk about like, Right. But so, and well, we see the same kind of boom bust cycle of, right? Bitcoin's at thirty five thousand. Yeah, let's build out as much infrastructure as possible. It goes back down to ten. Crap, we're underwater on this. Um, well, we see that same cycle. I mean, I, I mean, we can we can talk a little bit about cyclicality. I'm sure Nick has thoughts on this. Yes, there are cycles in Bitcoin, but they operate so much faster than cycles in other industries. And I think what we've seen consistently with Bitcoin is the new highs are higher and the new lows are also higher. Um, so the trend line, right, if you normalize it um, and you take out a lot of that volatility, the trend line is is up and to the right and the supply demand fundamentals of, of Bitcoin, um, I think, continue to make that the, the pattern. But Nick, you're, you have opinions on this, I know. Yeah, it's very cyclical industry. I prefer when we're in the downtrend and uh, things get quieter and uh, frankly, deals aren't as competitive. Uh, right now, uh, everyone's attention is on crypto and uh, it actually gets more challenging to operate. Um, even though obviously the bright side is that the amount of talent that we're seeing flowing into the industry right now is unbelievable, uh, especially from you know established 
um, institutions in traditional finance, the outflow is really considerable. But um, yeah, as Meltem says, we're talking about the secular process of monetization of a new, uh, fundamentally new digital commodity from scratch. And it's, in my view, it's going to take decades for the world to get fully accustomed to this thing and truly understand it and what it's like to own value in the form of information. But in the short term, it is absolutely very cyclical. Um, but if you compare this cycle, for instance, with 2017, it is materially different uh, in terms of the caliber of participation, the macroeconomic tailwinds that are present today that were not present then, and the quality of the plumbing, which folks like Meltem have you know, materially improved such that the industry can actually take on meaningful capital in a way that it simply could not before. So every cycle brings us a new level of sophistication and maturity. But I think the other piece I'll add, so from a trader's perspective, right, that volatility in Bitcoin is actually one of its very attractive characteristics in terms of market participants coming in. I spend a lot of time dealing with hedge funds and, and active trading firms, and we have electronic trading systems that they can plug into and connect like we're one of the few shops that actually has a fixed api most people are still doing like email and voice brokering which like i don't know who who does that <laughs> it's preposterous and then so, i think we've even met with you on our algo suite right to be like yeah. hey the next step is algorithmic execution of those things. yeah just plug it in right like we don't employ a single sales trader it's all mathematicians and engineers right so in terms of people who want to deploy like a delta one market neutral strategy there's actually a lot of really attractive opportunity in this space that are that is a result of some of the unique financial contract structures that have been developed so uh, for example like the perpetual swap it doesn't exist anywhere else um, and the fact that like people have this fundamental misconception that there is a lot of leverage in the crypto ecosystem. And Jeff, you'll empathize with this. Everyone's like, oh my God, crypto is so much leverage. And it's like, no, you don't understand. You can buy highly levered products. So you can buy 100x levered product. But in terms of actual leverage, there's no margining. There's no cross margining. There's no central clearing. The cash borrow is extremely expensive. And the funding rate on a perpetual swap can be as high as 10 to 15% in dollars per month. So actually, there's not enough leverage. There's basically zero leverage. And the cost of borrowing cash is actually the primary constraint. So I think there's this really interesting misconception that people have from the outside looking in. And then they come in and they're like, this is absolutely wild. I've never seen anything like this in my life, which is why I think new capital coming in sees the space and is like, wait a minute, I have dollars that are sitting here at zero, right? My rate is zero and inflation just hit 2.5% in the US, right? 2.6%. So I can lose dollar value. I can use purchasing lose purchasing power or I can sit over here and use my cash to fund Bitcoin trading activity and I can do 15 to 20% a year just because I have cash and cash is so constrained. Even if I don't trade a single dollar and I just lend it out, I can net six to 8%. I used to trade rates at 3% and I thought I was super cool. Like, <laughs> you weren't, you weren't. I wasn't, I'm a loser, sorry. It's a great uh, point though. I mean, just look at the interest rate the crypto native interest rate is structurally high. And to me, that speaks to the dynamism of the industry. And it is important that there is a cost of capital. We don't have that in the, in the you know, 
traditional yeah, financial because system. Because you have Fed given rights. The Fed decides who gets the direct plug into the money pipe, right? The distribution channel is Fed to bank, to SIFI, to smaller bank, to broker, to retail. Here, the pipe goes direct to whatever venue you want to build on top of it. Like that structural shift, I think, is so critical. So a few things I want to back up in the volatility and the trading, like to me, you could have created Bitcoin in a lab with a bunch of Chicago prop traders, right? Of like, I think they were at a bar and like, I'm smarter than you, you know, I'm, I'm a better trader than you. And they're like, let's create some digital currency that we can trade against each other and I'll prove who's smart enough, right? And it's just become that trading game and capturing that volatility is huge in a bunch of these prop firms now. Um, so it's almost a perfect product for them to capture that volatility. And I don't, some yeah, of them I'm, have a view on where it's going up, but yeah, others but, but, but the other thing, I'm not a TA person, right? Like technical analysis, I call it lines and triangles. I'm yeah. not that person. <laughs> Respect to all the charting people, but all the technical analysis people love Bitcoin because it charts beautifully, like because yeah. there's such a wealth of data. And again, like Coinmetrics, Kaiko, all of these data providers are providing super rich data and all of this data is like on chain. You don't actually have to try to figure out who's doing what. It allows for an entirely different level of the game. My thesis is actually that finance is becoming the ultimate game, right? Like capital markets are the ultimate game. Um, and we will have markets for everything and everything will be financialized, right? Because we at our core are as humans, degenerate gamblers, many of us are, even yes. if we don't know it yet. Even in games, right? I was looking at a crazy stat the other day, even in these like massive multiplayer online games like Roblox, the most popular place in the game is the marketplace. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I fully agree with you. I think this is just the next iteration of this. And it's such an important component of what I think capital markets will start to look like. And it's just so fundamentally exciting. Like if you've ever traded anything and then you trade using crypto, like every neuron in your brain just lights up. I don't know if you had that experience, Jeff, when you started interacting with crypto, like I just felt like every cell in my body was like, yeah, yes, like give me more. It's so good. Nick, is There's, that what you get? I'm, I'm actually not, I'm a terrible trader, full disclosure. So I just try and accumulate as much Bitcoin as humanly possible. Uh, and, and that's it. But um, there's one interesting point on the volatility, which I'll mention. Bitcoin is the first commodity such that there is no supply reaction to price increases. So unlike gold, if, if the gold price goes up a lot, gold mines will come online and produce more gold. Same with silver, same with every commodity, basically. Uh, so the supply can increase at a slightly faster rate to moderate an increase in demand. Uh, well, however, hogs are the all-time example of that, right? The price of hogs is high. You go slaughter your hogs, and exactly. the market now there's less hogs, and it, the supply demand works. Huh? So you have a certain supply elasticity. Bitcoin is by design, and it, to my knowledge, really the first, I would say, commodity ever that is perfectly inelastic uh, from a supply perspective. So any increase in demand can be manifested exclusively in price not supply the supply progresses at the preordained rate and that i think causes some of this outsized volatility 
because you know with gold for instance the volatility can be moderated somewhat by the 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 supply response to demand shock that's not present in bitcoin some people say that's a bad thing right um if if it wants to progress to a medium of exchange but from a trading perspective that's part of the attractiveness is it's extremely pure demand yeah. is very purely expressed in price right well in theory it right and uh, Jason Buck, Muni Fund was talking to me about this. Of like, the, you need the elasticity because humans make mistakes and because human ingenuity, like if they come up with new ideas, they need that elasticity of money in order to fund those ideas. What do you say to that? Well, we've. It's just. I think it's worth trying uh, to have a, a a digital commodity which is perfectly bounded in its supply. I mean. To me, all, all of the real the problems with the money system come from the insertion of discretion into the supply. And it, it's often well-intentioned, of course, but then right, you can see it get out of control. Commissioners deciding what happens in the world. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you prefer cryptography? Or do you prefer, you know, proof of PhD uh, in, in order to determine the, the money well, supply? Well, not even so. PhD. I mean, I'm sorry, but do we see the people running this country? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure that I'm on board with that. Like maybe we should have different qualifications. I think the other point that Nick makes, um, I'll be a little bit of like, um, not a contrarian, but I'll just sort of push the boundary a bit. Um, I think what we're going to is like historically our world and everything that happens in the financial system has been predicated on trust. Right. And financial institutions and governments have repeatedly violated this covenant of trust repeatedly. But there are no consequences because there is no option to exit. Right. And Nick, I think you've written about voice and exit before as well. So people voice. And this is why we saw like Occupy Wall Street and protest this time around. Right. We had five times the money printing that we had during the last financial crisis and no one was in the streets. Why? Well, we couldn't leave our houses, number one. And number two, people just didn't care, right? The spectacles get bigger, the distractions get, get greater. We now live in the bread and circuses era. Um, but for the first time, we have an opportunity to exit. The exit is, is Bitcoin and this parallel sort of financial system that's been built over here. It, over the last six years, the financial system and the market structure that's developed around Bitcoin, you have to remember, was developed completely isolated from Wall Street. And a lot of the early pioneers who built Bitcoin trading platforms didn't come from the street. They came from the gaming community. And so a Bitcoin trading platform can support tens of millions of users at the same time. They were pricing tens of millions of contracts, right? These perpetual swap contracts in real time, like the amount of compute that takes and the amount of latency and throughput these exchanges are processing is orders of magnitude greater than traditional exchanges. But this whole parallel financial system has gotten built. And so for the first time, I think what's fascinating to observe is people have the opportunity to exit and to choose to do something different because in its purest form bitcoin is an experiment in the separation of money and state which we haven't had in three or four millennia um and then if you take that sort of a, a step further i think what makes bitcoin so unique in my view is i'm no longer being asked to trust an institution or an individual or an authority i am being asked to trust math and i can verifiably prove 
that what someone tells me has happened has actually happened because we have a public ledger. I think that is such a fundamental shift in the way we conceptualize our relationship with authority. Um, and I think it's emblematic of the direction in which our world is moving. Like we have governments and institutions in this state of extreme dysfunction. And I'll be, you know, I will tell you my observation when I step outside my door is like, this is deeply dysfunctional. And in my view, um, as you know, someone who's now in their mid to late 30s is Bitcoin is an antidote to dysfunction from a monetary perspective. I can own it, I can trade it, and I can choose not only to use my voice, but I can choose to exit. And but if, so most, think, if enough people exit, it won't the government right say, hey, this is we're losing control and I'm going to start to tack on controls. What, right? but, but what's the government going to do, Jeff? Well, you tell me, right? They've already said like you have to report all the transactions and Right. So, but as Nick articulated, I no longer like there's this great meme that's like, oh, but when Bitcoin hits a million dollars, like how will I sell my Bitcoin? And it's Neo and Morpheus talking and Morpheus says, Neo, when it happens, you won't have to like. So as Nick was articulating right now, I can do everything I normally do as a venture capitalist without ever touching the U.S. correspondent banking system. But they could take, right? Couldn't they go into like, well, you can't have your license to transact whatever business you're in or, right? You can't okay. have So a, then I'll leave America and I'll go to one of dozens of jurisdictions who would love to have my business. Yeah, but I'm saying from America's standpoint, that could get messy, right? But if that's the whole point of like, yeah, break, break the banking system and- Exit. Well, Jeff, I don't think it's in America's interest to really interfere with crypto. I mean, quite the contrary. Um, the crypto industry is- um, it's not exclusively American, obviously, but it is quite American in nature. I mean, this is a global phenomenon, but the U.S. is, in, in my view at least, and I don't want to sound chauvinistic about this, uh, probably the leader in terms of where Bitcoin is custodied, where the major Bitcoin institutions are. Coinbase is about to go public, maybe 50-ish billion dollar valuation, you know, really marquee IPO, where a lot of the core development occurs here in the U.S., Bitcoiners are contributing to the tax base of this country. The IRS totally understood Bitcoin from day one. They treat it as property. You have to pay your capital gains on it. Um, so it's quite well understood in this country. And in, at this point, probably over 10 million Americans hold Bitcoin. So to really interfere with it would be to interfere with the property rights of, uh, of American citizens. And that but, has happened and, historically, right, that's for happened. sure. But I don't know if that would be politically tractable today. I mean, if you look at the last time we saw monetary repression, like really meaningful monetary repression in kind of the 30s, you had gold ownership was made illegal. That was a different context politically. That was the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, FDR, I think, was in charge, I believe. Um, you, you had a lot of concentrated power in the executive to me, I look at Washington today, I don't see that same level of power, even though, you know, there is a consolidation of power. To me, that is happening more in sort of Silicon Valley. I don't see the state- argue the power's with the billionaires and the corporations, right? And then they're making yeah. the laws. And if it's- Well, threat, the corporations then... make laws. That's the thing. We don't live in a nation state. We live in a corporation state. But if it starts to threaten the corporations, they'll change the laws, right? Get the laws changed. 
Well, I mean, a lot of corporates are getting on board with crypto fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, that's that's Facebook's Libra, you know, PayPal's on board, Visa's on board. So I think they are, they've seen this phenomenon for what it is, um, which is a non-state monetary system and, and they're interested in it. So, But I think the point that you're making, Nick, here is a really important one. We also have to take the macro context into consideration. We no longer live in a single currency world. It, it, we used to have U.S. dollar hegemony. I don't think most people realize that we no longer live in a world denominated in dollars. It's already happened. We live in a multipolar currency world. And yes, the U.S. dollar still has much of that market share. But China, um, the renminbi, especially the digital renminbi that's now being launched is going to be a big part of the story. Russia is making a push to move away from the dollar and is denominating in rubles and euros only. I think the Middle East is realigning. Like we see fundamental shifts in alignment around the world. And I think many countries look at the success of, of Bitcoin and it's an inspiration, it sparks an idea, right? It's if a group of people online can bring a new monetary system, a new non-government operated monetary system into existence, right? How do we as groups of countries or groups of loosely held political alliances or even groups of individuals create monetary systems that reflect our principles, our values, our beliefs, um, and so I do think we're entering into a new era that will be defined by a multipolar currency world. And one of the poles will be a non-government entity and it's the Bitcoin nation. Like it's this group of people, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world who not only hold Bitcoin, but believe in a specific set of ideals when it comes to monetary and fiscal policy. What, what are your thoughts? So they would still pay taxes to fund the army and the police from attacking the mining facilities and the internet facilities, right? Like, so it has to tie back to the state in some way. Would you agree or no? I don't see Bitcoin as incompatible with the state function. Uh, to me, yeah, Bitcoin is just a big argument against it. Of like, it's going to take over and kill the state. Like they have to coexist, right? Yeah. I, I don't like the catastrophizing kind of rhetorical stance. I mean, like ultimately we're not proposing the abolition of the state by any means i'm proposing a modernization of effectively the gold standard and an improved approach to that the gold standard was not fundamentally hostile to the state it was actually highly effective and synergistic with state objectives um there was a long historical epic really much longer than the current fiat period where we had um the lack of monetary discretion, gold-based monetary standard, Bitcoin is just a revised and updated and you know more technologically advanced version of the same thing. I see it as restorative rather than progressive fundamentally. And let me shift gears for a quick sec of the, um, so I'm a big family office. You guys are coming in. Tell me the bull case for Bitcoin and how much of it I should own. I, I can start. So we employ um, a sizable research team and we publish a lot of research on www.coinshares.com. Um, based on our research um, for folks who are allocated to a traditional 60-40 portfolio, 
we found that a 4% allocation to Bitcoin leads to both optimal diversification effects as well as optimal re uh, risk return uh, balance. So we found that allocation to Bitcoin resulted in a 5x increase in performance over the last five years. Now, again, temperament is very different, but that 4% number, I think for us is a good starting point and an opener to the conversation. Um, I think zero is definitely the wrong number and 100 is probably also the wrong number. There's a sliding Nick. scale, <laughs> but four is a good place to start. But what's from just plain language, what's the, is it, well, you need to own it because it's going to keep going up or what's the plain language reason besides the price appreciation? Yeah, look, it's, it's a very cheap call option on a potential future where Bitcoin is a global reserve currency or is a serious player in this multipolar currency world. So if you think about it from a risk reward perspective, the risk of not owning Bitcoin is greater than the risk of allocating to Bitcoin. Although it's, some would say, right, it's too expensive now, but you're saying whatever, just buy a smaller percentage. But, uh, yeah. Sorry, on that expensive point, Jeff, what I would say is a Honus Wagner card, which is a rare baseball card, just sold for $5.3 million. Yeah. It had already shattered a record in December. A Wayne Gretzky hockey card sold for $2 million right? Collectibles are selling at record highs. A Porsche, there are 300,000 Porsches produced in Europe. Porsche retails for $100,000. There are going to be 300,000 Bitcoins mined this year. Bitcoin retails right now for $38,000. You look at those numbers and you tell me that Bitcoin is expensive. It isn't. It's so cheap at 38,000. Well, well I'm just saying if, if you're 4%, just whatever the price is and divide it by your 4%. Um, yeah, the unit price doesn't really matter. Uh, the unit price is completely arbitrary. Satoshi could have divided Bitcoin up however they liked, really. Um, that you should be looking at the aggregate capitalization. Really, you should be looking at the liquid capitalization because cer certain Bitcoins are lost. Uh, and right now, it's something like 600-ish billion. Uh, you compare that to gold, uh, about 10, 11 trillion. And gold is at a historical low ebb because it's been demonetized for a long time now. Uh, so, you know, I would look at it as um, a share of the, the, you know, various means that we have of storing wealth in society. Obviously, the number one, uh, the true gold standard is U.S. treasuries right now. And uh, those are in the, the many tens of trillions. Uh, so... If you believe that Bitcoin will be a monetary asset of consequence, it still has a lot of room to run. But in terms of the pitch, the simplest pitch I would give is, sure, it's a call option on this Bitcoin crypto financial system, and it's a bet on all the entrepreneurs and the smart people that are building here. But to me, it's a very pure exit valve from monetary oppression, should it occur. If you expect that there is going to be inflation or expropriation or devaluations in your country, um, to me, Bitcoin is the, is the best way to combat that. But not guaranteed, of course, nothing's guaranteed, but it doesn't have, right? There's a basis risk there of like inflation could happen and Bitcoin doesn't appreciate, right? It certainly could, yeah. I mean, I see it as contextual. So, you know, Bitcoin has varying relevant levels of relevance based on sort of where you are in your monetary context. So if you live in Venezuela, this is yeah. going to sound cliched, but yeah, no brainer. Bitcoin is, is highly relevant there. People actually use it to acquire dollars, believe it or not. They use it as a bridge currency. 
Um, if you're in Lebanon, it's pretty Bitcoin and gold. Those are very relevant commodities to you. In the U.S., less so today, right? Not as relevant. Our financial system functions fairly well. It's not entirely politicized yet. Um, there's not rampant inflation. Uh, we're not seeing yield curve control, the likes of which we saw in the 40s, anything like that. Uh, but that could all change. And uh, a lot of people are allocating to Bitcoin with the expectation that it will change because the time to fight monetary repression is before it occurs. You don't want to be nope. caught with your pants down. That's, that's actually also the best time to buy Bitcoin. The best time to buy Bitcoin is yesterday. But since I don't have a time machine, the second yeah. best time to buy Bitcoin is today. Yeah. And the worst time to buy Bitcoin is tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> And now you guys don't do this too often, but tell me the bear case, right? If you had to peel back and find some warts, what warts would you find? But say? We do the bear case all the time. Like okay. at three in the morning, the only other person I know who's ridiculous enough to be online and like be having a low key anxiety attack is Nick Carter. So. <laughs> so tell me what those moments are when you wake up sweating, like, holy crap, what did we do? Why are we in this industry? There's a lot that can go wrong with Bitcoin. I mean, the the price progression is a, 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 it measures how much Bitcoin has been de-risked over time. But since it's still relatively small, that's the signal that there's still some embedded risk there. Um, I would say the Bitcoin transactional network losing vibrancy would be the biggest risk. The Bitcoin ends up being transacted on other networks uh, because we need fees to pay the miners. That's kind of an esoteric critique that you'll hear sometimes. Um, I think the other big risk, if I can add, Nick, is actual protocol level risks. Like, I think people have this perception that Bitcoin just runs and operates, but it, but it doesn't. Um, the protocol, the Bitcoin code base, is an open source software project. And right now, Bitcoin core development and the security of the Bitcoin protocol is being maintained by a, a bunch of developers who are either employed by companies or funded through initiatives like the MIT Digital Currency Initiative and, and others. So funding continued open source development and ensuring that high quality talent, like the devs who really understand the Bitcoin protocol are incentivized to continue working on it or is a huge challenge. Um, open source communities have long had sort of this incentive and free rider problem and Bitcoin is not absent of that. Um, we are working on that at CoinShares and we'll be sharing more news about that in the coming weeks and, and months. And I think the second risk is really at the network level. So if we talk about the physical instantiation of the Bitcoin network, meaning machines, i.e. silicon consuming electricity to run the Bitcoin core code. Um, there are also some really interesting questions there. Obviously, one of the questions that comes up most, well, two questions is one, will Bitcoin boil the ocean in terms of its energy consumption, which, you know, that's, you know, a ridiculous sort of idea, um, but certainly one we, we combat often. And then the other one is, you know, if um, OFAC sanctioned countries or other sort of actors that are unfavorable are very active in, in the physical instantiation of the Bitcoin network, how does that impact its, its security um, sort of on the geopolitical stage? So I think um, those are two other things that I think about a lot is how do we diversify uh, Bitcoin mining and um, how do we utilize uh, renewables, which actually, you know, renewables are the prevalent source of energy for Bitcoin mining. I think there is a lot of work to be done there to minimize the, the information gap and just some of the fundamental misunderstandings that continue that, to be. That's more just because it's cheaper, right? Instead of like it's, they're trying to save the earth. 
Yeah. No, it's 100% an economic problem. I mean, the best way to mine Bitcoin is with Next renewable energy. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I've heard a conspiracy theory that it was started by the CIA to destabilize uh, oil oil countries, right? Like <laughs> to. Um, and then, Meltem, I know you got to go soon. Um, so I'm going to ask you, we do at the end, but I'll ask you now your favorite Star Wars character. A little Not off topic. A, I'm going to break your heart. I'm not a Star Wars person. Oh, well, you have to know one of them, right? I don't know any of them. Zero? Oh, no. I confuse Star do? Wars and Star Trek. Uh, do you have but a they're favorite? like not the same. Star Wars is George Lucas, right? Yes. Melton, this is brutal. <laughs> I'm not this person. Like, I'm into anime and like fantasy and like sci fi. They're coming Star- out with an anime one on Disney Plus for Star Wars. Yeah, I watched The Mandalorian. Look, um, oh, oh, I'll so go back Mandalorian. to Mandalorian. Yeah, baby. No, when I was a kid, um, my dad did make me watch all the Star Wars, um, and I always liked the Ewoks, like the little furry creatures. Yeah, they're really right. cute. So I'm gonna go I'll with the Ewoks, Ewok. which is lame. But if you wanted then, to do like anime characters, we could go into that or like <laughs> video game characters. That's outside that. my realm. And then I just want to ask you real quick before you go, Maldem, of this movement to uh, basically tokenize hedge fund investments to be able to split it into smaller pieces? Um, I mean, look, we've been doing securitization um, for a long time and there are a million one ways to securitize an asset. And then really the whole objective, it's really not the securitization, it's the ability to use these new forms of uh, securities as lever- as collateral to obtain leverage, right? It really isn't about the method you use to like split something up into to smaller pieces. Um, it's really about your ability to use assets in a more productive manner and so or obtain leverage or make these things more liquid or use them as a lien against which you can borrow cash. Um, so I think we're focusing on the wrong problem by thinking about how we can slice stuff off and assign ownership rights. I think it's really more about the entire system around it, which is how do you make anything and everything usable as a collateral to obtain leverage. And as I've said, I will not rest until I can securitize my soul. I will sell it to the highest bidder so that I can use it as collateral to obtain leverage so I can buy more Bitcoin. If you would like to give me a price, I am taking open bids on Twitter via You already sold your soul a little by starting out in the energy world, right? I mean, uh, I've reclaimed some of it back, I'd like to think. Um, (laughs) I worked at the Death Star for a brief period of time. (laughs) Uh, There's a Star Wars reference. That's what we used to call Exxon's headquarters in Irving. It's the Death Star. Uh, So I I feel like I've clawed back the little bit of my soul that was left behind in the Death Star. (laughs) Yeah. But for for me, the hedge fund side is more about like going around regulation or whatnot of like, if you need to be this super accredited investor, QEP. But if you securitize and tokenize it, then any retail investor could buy it for $500. Yeah, I believe in permissionless financial innovation. The fact that we allow people to mortgage, remortgage their houses so they can gamble at a casino, but we won't let them invest. It's like incredibly, A, it's patronizing and incredibly offensive, but B, like it's completely illogical, Um, you know. I yeah, could some say of our so clients, I'm like, you must have found your money in an alley. There's no way you, right? You check off all the sophistication boxes per the SEC, but whoa. Mm-hmm. There's, there's but full no- circle to where you started, right? Like you could have all the diplomas, you could have as many pieces of paper as you like, but those pieces of paper don't mean that your ideas are, are good. They don't make you a good investor. I know plenty of people with lots of pieces of paper in their name. 
uh, and lots of letters behind their name and all sorts of certifications and couldn't invest their way out of a paper bag. So, you know, it's <laughs> not being offensive, just being realistic here. Um, but look, if you believe in permissionless financial innovation, you also have to accept the fact that there are going to be things that happen that are also, you know, potentially negative. And um, at the end of the day, I think it's just a question of balancing the risk and reward. And really, that's what we're trying to find here, right, is a balance between this like new world of permissionless financial innovation, and this very pedantic patronizing model of, you know, people sitting in ivory towers, telling Americans who are living on stimulus checks what they can and can't do with their money out of safety, or right. regard for their safety. I mean, so there is a, a balance. I'm probably not the best person to advise on what that balance should be because I never want to be a policymaker, but I do think the balance has shifted. We saw that last week. Like you can take our freedom, you can debase our money, you can make us wear masks and stay inside. But if you mess with my tendies, i.e. if you don't let me <laughs> invest in meme stocks, like we will mess you up. Yeah. Um, I think that was perfectly emblematic of the moment we are living in, so. And then do you have four more minutes for one more question? The, um, on the, just circling back to futures on Bitcoin and now they just launched the Ether contract. So it's going to launch of- in four days. I'm so excited. Monday. I have my calendar marked. I literally, I'm such a loser. I have my calendar marked for Monday. Um, but how you, in terms of all the, the piping and the hedging, what are you seeing in terms of people using futures? I think it's up like 120% the volume yeah. over the last Okay, year. let me give you some really quick stats because uh, I love market stats. So um, here are three really interesting things that have been happening. So we talked a little bit about sentiment. Sentiment drives demand. And as you know, demand drives changes in market structure and market activity. Here's what we're seeing. Number one, market trading hours used to be dominated by Asia trading hours. We've seen a dramatic shift to UK and US trading hours. So more trading activity happening during UK and US trading hours. That data is sourced from Kaiko, which is a market data provider. It was in their December research report if anyone wants to look it up. The second trend we're seeing also from the same Kaiko report is trade pairs. The USDT, the Tether Bitcoin trade pair, used to be the dominant Bitcoin trade pair. We've seen a 7x increase in the USD, regular old dollar Bitcoin trade pair, since last August, uh, signifying that we have more institutions and more traditional investors who are engaging with the traditional banking system, accessing the Bitcoin trade pair. And that's happening through regulated venues and regulated brokers and regulated jurisdictions. The other trend, CNE contract, uh, Bitcoin contract is the only USD cash settled contract that's really traded at scale, broke all time highs in December. Again, in January, there are 110 large participants on that contract, 330 similar types of participants in the gold market. So in terms of large institutions that are allocating to Bitcoin, like it's catching up to gold and very quickly. And in terms of volumes, we're seeing it's massive. We did 3 trillion in derivatives volume in 2019. We did close to 20 last year. I think this year we'll top 100, which is wild. Um, and if people are interested in the derivative side, I highly recommend checking out uh, Paradigm. trillion in crypto derivatives? Yeah, and notional volume in yeah. crypto derivatives. Yeah, at least, right? Um, and I highly recommend Paradigm. Uh, .io, I believe, or Google Trade Paradigm. They're one of my portfolio companies, full disclosure. It's basically the trade web of crypto, single screen execution across all derivatives platforms in the crypto space, as well as multi-dealer RFQ, 
which is, as you know, like putting everything on one screen is, is really important. Um, they did 11 billion um, in one day in January. And all of their stats that you can see on their, their website, um, it's pretty cool, but they're doing like 30 to 40% of daily options volume in the Bitcoin space. It's The stats are mind blowing. Like the market is changing, it's changing so fast and it's changing in such fascinating ways. Um, I think the launch of the Ether futures contract is gonna blow some people's minds. I'm um, definitely very excited. Like I said, it's on my calendar. And the last trend certainly we can't miss is what's happening in the DeFi or decentralized finance space. We have tens of billions of dollars every month flowing through peer-to-peer -peer exchanges and decentralized order books. Um, again, you know, this thesis we've long had that you should be able to trade anything with anyone anywhere clear how you want, margin how you want, and settle how and where you want. That world now exists in the world of DeFi. It's absolutely amazing. And I think it's opening people's eyes to what capital markets in the future could look like, um, which means you're no longer you know, stuck in one trading environment with your leverage and your, your trading, your price discovery, and your clearing and your settlement and your margin with one broker. You can actually do it wherever you want with whoever offers you the best price. And that's pretty exciting. That makes Wall Street quake in their boots, right? Mm, that's my that's my side hobby. <laughs> of making people <laughs> quake or Wall Street in particular? Yeah. Well, I think that, look, I think the street looks the way it does because there are some really perverse incentives at play. My incentive here and, and what I'm excited about is how do we take these ideas and apply them to the world of, of markets. I think markets are so fundamental to human civilization. As I said, you know, the marketplace is always the heart of any culture, whether it's in real life or even in virtual worlds where people are spending a lot of time in, in marketplaces. And so this idea that anything and everything can be a place where the marketplace exists and anyone with a phone connection or an internet connection can participate in the marketplace, whether they're a human, an avatar, a pseudonym, a machine, um, you know, a node in a network, it, I think it's fundamentally exciting. I'm really thrilled about it. Awesome. All right. You got a drop or you can hang out. Um, I'll leave it. To, I'll leave it to Nick because Nick is a smarter than me, B funnier than me and C. <laughs> um, I don't know. I was going to say something else flattering, but I already feel like I've said a lot of <laughs> you, nice you've things. You've said today. enough, Meltem. Yeah. I can't follow the, the knowledge drop that you just did on, uh, on market data. That was very impressive. That was. Appreciate. I love it. It's fun. If you ever want to have no life at all, you can come hang out in my house. We talk about market data and market structure. It's very boring and everyone in my hey. household hates me. <laughs> so. no, I, I'm in that world. So I know those topics. They're exciting. They're, they're like perversely exciting. But Thank you, Jeff. Nick, Thank take you. it home, my man. Okay. Take care, Maltem. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So Nick, you what are your comments? What are your thoughts on the whole DeFi movement and how that, to me, it's kind of separate of like, is that having to do with crypto or not really, right? They're sort of blended yeah. together in a perverse way. No, I mean, I would say DeFi is crypto. It's probably actually the thing, the corner of this industry that is marshalling the most excitement and attention and capital right now. Um, it's completely unconstrained. There's no real attempt to bring 
any of these products or structures into concert with the various regulatory regimes in the US that would pertain to them, which is a little distinct from the in the, you know the growth of the Bitcoin exchange industry, et cetera, because there those were eventually subsumed under the sort of appropriate regulatory constructs. With DeFi, the objective is to completely disintermediate a number of complex financial processes, lending, uh, like the acquisition of leverage, swaps, insurance, um, all kinds of much more complex but products. But how does it differ from fintech is trying to do the same thing, right? But are, right, what's well, the crypto DeFi, time with DeFi? DeFi does this without a regard, with no regard for you know, the appropriate licenses. And then, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, that's just oh, like how the it is. Uber model, right? Just yeah. do it and then figure it out later. And DeFi uses fundamentally different plumbing. I mean, FinTech is a front end on top of the, you know, actual banking system, whereas DeFi envisions a world where you are transacting on a peer-to-peer basis on blockchains or you're pooling liquidity um, with other entities, typically on Ethereum, with no third party which has control over the system. So you're really just engaging with a contract that's deployed on chain. So it, it, it's a fundamentally different uh, experience, even if maybe some of the outputs kind of look cosmetically similar. Yeah. So I mean, like GameStop, that whole thing, like, hey, we can just trade with each other through XYZ yet to be created DeFi platform. Um, yeah, I would say be at risk. DeFi isn't quite there yet in, in terms of being able to host the trading of you know, real securities. Um, yeah. There are a number of synthetic products on DeFi that try and create uh, synthetic versions of, of real equity market securities. But that is going to be a really difficult question. Can you actually tokenize real stocks and trade them on this permissionless infrastructure to me, I'm not sure that would work because you need an intermediary or go-between. And that intermediary would probably come under pressure for facilitating the trading of equities in a completely unconstrained way. I'm not sure that would work. There are pseudo-equities that trade on DeFi, effectively crypto-native tokens that resemble equity in some ways. They have cash flows, they have governance rights. So they have some of the pieces of equity but they're not codified as equity. So it's a very interesting situation. You have crypto native equity, which is sort of developing basically. And those are the main things that would circulate on DeFi alongside, you know, the major crypto assets. And then how do you square? It's always weird to me, right? They're Bitcoiners kind of be like, the more institutional we can get and the more custodians and all this, the the bigger it'll get. But the whole ethos is to be decentralized. So it's kind of this... Uh, you know, against each other. The more centralized we become, we get better. But we're yeah, supposed to be decentralized. It's paradoxical to a certain extent. I mean, it's first of all, like the institutionalization of Bitcoin is positive for the price, of course. So it's like an opiate, right? It feels great, but it's yeah, not but it necessarily good for time. you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. However, that said, Meltem and I, we invest in this rapprochement, in the... Uh, the integration of the financial system and the crypto system, I don't envision them as distinct. I believe that they will be integrated. Um, I think the 
the point where I would say we might escape the perils of what happened to gold in terms of gold getting trapped in these walled gardens, the reason we might escape that fate would be because it's so much easier to take physical delivery of a cryptocurrency because, um, you know, you can verify an inbound Bitcoin payment really easily uh, by running a full node, for instance, whereas taking delivery of ingots of gold is challenging. And once you remove it from the walled garden, then to reinsert it, you have to sort of assay it again and verify that there's no tungsten in the gold or whatever. Yeah, what do you, I've heard you say that before, the uh, spectrometer or what's the tool? Yeah, XRF spectrometer. So that would yeah. be the analogy for the full node. The point is that you know gold ended up centralized because it's costly to verify, um, whereas any crypto asset is trivial to audit and verify. So what that means is potentially we would have a greater ability to hold these custodians and intermediaries accountable and withdraw our funds from them, and you know should they misbehave. So I think the structure of the underlying collateral in the system is such that we would be able to have more accountability from the intermediaries. But yeah, I completely see your point about it being somewhat paradoxical that we're just engaging in re-intermediation. Yeah, I just like it with friends. They're like, you got to own it as soon as these institutions get it. Like they just say it out loud within yeah. two sentences of each other, this paradox. Well, uh, and there, there will be a conflict at some point between the uh, effectively institutions that don't need the more cypherpunk qualities of Bitcoin. They don't necessarily need it to be this gray market commodity that flows freely, and they would prefer it to be fully surveilled. So and there will there be a conflict of U.S. company that's trying to be basically they'll only accept blocks that are fully verified or whatnot. Yeah, KYC mining, kind of OFAC compliant mining. Yeah, it's it's perturbing, frankly. And I've got friends on both sides. Some of them are cheering that, and some of them are horrified by it. Uh, so yes, this will come to a head at some point, 100%. And then I want to take back, I'm that big family office, you're trying to convince me, like, it's hard for me to understand, should I just buy the coin? Or should I invest in these companies that are doing things around the coin? Or both? Like, what's the, the bigger opportunity? Uh, good question. I think the law of large numbers is going to kick in at some point with Bitcoin. So it can't probably grow another 100x from here, just because of how big it is currently. I certainly have a very positive view of Bitcoin, but to me, in terms of the return profile, I look at Bitcoin versus a startup. If I'm investing at the seed stage in a startup that's building some really interesting application on crypto rails, right, you could easily potentially, yeah, excuse me, um, that startup might have a better return distribution than just owning Bitcoin. I Fundamentally, I think you have to, if you want to be a real crypto market participant and a lot of people's attitudes had to change around this. You should be doing a bit of both, frankly. The coin is a bet on, it's sort of the index for the whole system as a whole. Uh, it's the beta in the industry. And then startups are a way to bet on the dynamism of founders and a way to finance things that need to get built. Bitcoin wouldn't be where it is today without the accompanying startups that make it usable. Um, and obviously the startups value is predicated on people wanting exposure to the coin. So it's mutualistic, which is why, as a firm, we do both. And do you see allocators saying, hey, I, it's not in my mandate, I can't buy crypto, but sure, I can do a private equity type investment into these companies, right? So you could almost get the exposure you want without having to 
convince a committee that you're uh, buying crypto. That's what we saw first. Exploding. We saw that from pensions first. The first thing they did was they invested in, in crypto venture firms. Then some of them did direct investing into um, like financial institutions that were building in crypto. But then interestingly, more recently, we've actually seen some of these endowments um, investing directly into the assets themselves uh, through some of these newer, you know, really credible providers like Coinbase, NYDIG, uh, Fidelity Digital Assets, where I used to work. Um, so it is interesting. We've actually seen this normalization of owning the asset directly, but certainly there was a long period of time where uh, the, the mandates had to be kind of shuffled around a little bit so that these institutions could make sense of what the assets even were. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll finish with like, what's success look like, right? If you're out, you said decades, so say we're 40 years from now, what does success look like? What is, where does yeah. it, what side by side, how does this all look? Does it replace gold? Does it replace the US dollar? A lot of Bitcoiners envision success as the collapse of the US dollar, but I don't see it that way at all. I think Bitcoin will uh, compete with sovereign currencies and I believe its major effect will be as a disciplinary force, effectively forcing central banks to engage in tighter monetary policy because the penalty for them being extremely loose will be an outflow of capital to crypto assets and other tokenized uh, sovereign currencies. So we've already seen in many countries crypto dollarization beginning to occur. So China, that is most notably, right? China, Venezuela, we actually have invested in startups doing this in Latin America, basically using crypto rails, acquiring dollars. So relatively hard currency by comparison with their soft, soft local currencies. So what I see is a globalization of the most credible currencies and an enormous amount of pressure put on the weakest and least credible currencies. Uh, so I mean, to me, it's clear that the dollar system is somewhat degenerating. I don't expect the dollar is going to go away, though, um, anytime soon. I think Bitcoin is just going to become one of those other media of exchange that trade finance is settled in at the international level. It's going to become one of the you know more consequential and important uh, stores of value globally. Uh, but I, I think it'll exist alongside the major sovereign currencies. But I do think this notion of democratizing access to effectively foreign exchange uh, in a really cheap way is going to put a ton of pressure on some of the weakest sovereign currencies. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of currency crises relating to that. Uh, and so that's usually fixed by like interest rate differentials and whatnot, right? So, but Bitcoin doesn't really have an interest rate. So how do, how do you think about that? Well, it has a crypto native interest rate. If you look at any of the providers that um, lend or borrow Bitcoin, the interest rate for Bitcoins is typically six to eight percent um, in these markets, and so that sucks capital in, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, central banks have tools they can use to defend against these things. But we're talking about all you need is a smartphone and the internet uh, in order to engage in the crypto economy. So that's a very challenging thing to defend against. Even if you outlaw exchanges and outlaw peer-to-peer exchange, all you need is Telegram or Signal, a chat app, and uh, an internet connection, and crypto-denominated commerce can occur. And so we see it happening 
on in the black market, in the gray market, in places where it's formally banned, like crypto commerce still. Yeah. yeah, I mean, China's kind of a gray area because there are exchanges that operate in China. So it's not even clear to me that it's 100% banned. But uh, yeah, in, in virtually every jurisdiction worldwide, you can't really suppress it. It's kind of like a weed at this point. And and so, if, but if I'm the U, if I'm the U.S. government, I come out with my own U.S. crypto coin, whatever crypto dollar, right? Does that supplant Bitcoin, or you still have the same issues of there's a Fed and there's a interest rates and there's yeah, the crypto dollar, the USD, uh, the CBDC, for instance, that doesn't really compete with Bitcoin in the ways that Bitcoin is interesting because what Bitcoin lets you do is make transactions that settle quickly, are relatively private and gives you full transactional freedom, transactional autonomy. A Fed-derived crypto dollar or central bank digital currency most likely would not have transactional privacy. All of the tea leaves that I'm reading indicate to me that it would have some measure of sort of embedded KYC. So it would have that surveillance capacity built in. Maybe just as a emergent, you know, contingency measure, but I believe that surveillance would be inbuilt. So, and additionally, I see the bank sector getting more politicized. Generally, uh, it seems to me that's the trend, the way these things are going. So, if there are, if there's political discretion built into a central bank digital currency system, that's another axis where it would underperform relative to Bitcoin in terms of. Uh, the attractive characteristics of money. So I see it as inevitable that there will be fully digitized sovereign currencies um, that it probably exists in a tokenized format at some point. But to me, they actually don't really compete that directly with cryptocurrency. They're, it's just a new technological wrapper on the existing system, basically. And then would you say the same if like Amazon launches a token or something, right? Of like, they've got more power... Some might say than the U.S. government. So if they launched a competitor, it might still not be a store of value. It's just for transacting on their platform or whatnot. Yeah, they're free to. I don't see them as having the fundamental credibility to launch a new monetary system from scratch. You know, I wouldn't trust Amazon Coin, for instance. Yeah. Um, but I don't believe two, more people right have Prime memberships than go to church, or way more than own Bitcoin. Yeah. Pro- well, this I think worldwide, million. yeah, I'd say worldwide. There's about the best estimates I've seen of about a hundred million people own cryptocurrency. But yeah, I mean, it's a good point. The question is though, Amazon is a corporation. Can they underwrite a global monetary asset of consequence? Can they create something that people in Nigeria and Vietnam and China and Saudi Arabia would trust? Probably not. They would be seen as a tool of U.S. imperialism. Right. Is Bitcoin trusted in these places? Yes, because there's no one entity that controls it. And all you have to trust is that the rules of the network are being adhered to. So that's the difference, I would say. Bitcoin globalizes innately. Maybe Apple instead of Amazon. Apple might be. Maybe if the 10 most trusted brands globally came together, even then, I would say a, a value neutral, sort of politically neutral system which is fully organic like Bitcoin outcompetes on the domain of political neutrality, which is the really important question for money as far as I'm concerned. All right. I think that's it. Any last thoughts? 
Um, no, I, I, am I going to get the Star Wars question too? Or? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, usually we go through a whole list of favorites. So I'll, I'll just ask you your favorite uh, book, which can be a crypto book if you want, or just any type of book. Okay. Um, favorite book. Well, I have a whole list of great crypto books, but my favorite book, period, mm, so many choices. Probably Fooled by Randomness by, uh, by Taleb. I know oh, that's a, a popular investing yeah. answer, but I love it. Taleb's Turkey. Um, yeah, exactly. And then your favorite, you've, you're born and raised in Boston or you've just transplanted there? Where? Uh, technically, I'm British by origin and, and birth, and then uh, I grew up in D.C., and now I'm, I'm here in Boston. So favorite Boston restaurant that you can go back to once the quarantine's over? Oh, that's easy. It's got to be DeLuca's in the North End, yeah, uh, which is an amazing there. Italian. You, yeah, it's great. North End's fun. Uh, yeah. And then lastly, we asked all our guests' favorite Star Wars character, or it seems like you might have characters. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Star Wars mega fan or anything, uh, but I am more of a fan than Meltem, clearly. Right, you need to um, know one name at least, Meltem, come on. Well, she knew She knew some names. Um, I. This is a cliched answer, but I would have to go for Jango Fett because Ooh. he is just really cool and a good marksman. So uh, Tough way to go in front of your son, the head cut off. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'll send you behind me is our star star Wars fans guide to investing was an infographic we did. I can see it. I can Which, see it. Uh, and it was years and years ago. And my uh, Bitcoin was Jar Jar Binks. Unfortunately, which that's was, tough. That is uh, that's a tough comparison. <laughs> and the line but, was, you really expect us to take this seriously. Um, there's so that to- theory. There's that theory that Jar Jar is Darth Sidious, I guess though. Right. Yeah. Have you seen that fan theory? <laughs> I have seen that. I, I have a thing. I read all the fan stuff on like Mandalorian and all the non-main uh, core stuff. But the core movies, if there's a new one coming out, I don't read any. Uh, I don't want to hurt my opinion coming into it. Right. Well, the, the Bitcoin as Jar Jar comparison is maybe apt because it was seen as very clownish uh, and and silly for many years and it was comic relief. So that was definitely befitting for the first stage of its life. That's for sure. Yeah, It might be like the rebel Alliance now or something, right? It's getting it's got a foothold. It's fighting, scrapping. We don't call it a peaceful revolution for nothing. You know, <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks, Nick. Um, we'll put in the show notes where to get a hold of you and keep up the good work. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jeff. This has been really great. All right. Thanks. episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.